Well, good morning. It's great to be with you. Thank you so much for having us uh, here. I'm glad to be here with my, my wife and my daughters, and uh, thankful for my ongoing relationship with uh, Pastor Dan and Pastor Chris and all of you in the Lord. It's, uh, it's great, to, great to see you. It's been a number of years since we've been here. And I bring you greetings from TEDS, from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. These are challenging days in theological education and in higher education, but there's some exciting things happening at Trinity. We have a fantastic uh, leadership and our new dean, David Powell, and new faculty members this, uh, starting this fall in preaching and counseling and systematic theology. So um, grateful to serve there. And uh, if any of you are interested in talking about Trinity, I'd be, I'd be glad to talk to you after the service. I was thinking about the last, I think I was last here in 2019, and a lot has happened in our country since then. We had a contentious presidential election, a pandemic, the mask wars, uh, the death of George Floyd. Uh, I live in Kenosha, and we had, uh, as you know, a great deal of turmoil there over the shooting of Jacob Blake. There's a war in Ukraine, a lot of issues these days in LGBTQ uh, and transgenderism, uh, and now the end of Roe versus Wade. So it, it, it does feel sometimes like it is increasingly complicated to be a faithful Christian as these uh, political and socia- social issues tend to be tearing our, our, our country apart. I, I, don't, I don't know about you, but it, it does feel like a challenge. And so today we have the opportunity to look at Daniel chapter 6, a story in the Bible that deals with living faithfully in a secular culture. This story is, is often called Daniel in the lion's den. It's, maybe, maybe it feels to you like a children's story, but it's not. It is serious business for adults. It is God's holy word, and so we'll look at what it has to teach us about about faithful living. Would you turn there in your Bibles so you can follow along as we work through this story? Daniel chapter 6, you can navigate there in your smartphone or use your Bible. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we'll go back and we'll look at it in three parts. This is Daniel chapter 6. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel and his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den." 
Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring, with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heaven and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Let's pray. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We pray now that the words of your inspired, holy, and true word 
would settle in our hearts and reorient us toward you. And we ask this in your name. Amen. This is a story about living in a land far away from one's true home. Sometimes the idea of home can be a bit confusing. Until I was a teenager, my parents were missionaries in Central Africa, and I lived in a country called Zaire, which is now called the Democratic Republic of the Congo. I went to the market with my mom, and we bought rice and mangoes and uh, chicken, I guess, and we lived there. We had, uh, we had people come by our house uh, in the mornings to sell us mangoes and papaya, and we had banana trees in our backyard that uh, produced uh, all kinds of bananas. I, I ate so many of those, I, I took about 10 years off when I got back to the States. I just I couldn't take bananas anymore. I really loved my home there. It was full of adventure and excitement, and I, I loved the, the laughter of the people and the, and the dancing and the big smiles and the climate and the slow pace of life. We didn't have any TV or radio or magazines or libraries there, so sometimes in the evenings we would pull you know, our chairs out on the front porch and we would watch as this certain flower would just open in the moonlight. It was kind of our entertainment. It was a very slow p- pace of life. And it was a wonderful place to grow up. I, I, really, I really loved it. But there was a tension because I knew that even though that felt like home, it wasn't home. I mean, it kind of was, but it wasn't. I had a blue U.S. passport. My parents taught me the Pledge of Allegiance and the U.S. National Anthem and I learned about the U.S. presidents and U.S. history, and people would say to me, hey, where are you from? And I would answer, Dayton, Ohio. I didn't hardly live there. My my grandparents lived there, but I I hadn't spent much time there. But, you know, that was confusing a a little bit because I, I kind of had two homes, one that felt like home and one that I didn't know very well. The people of Israel had a similar experience. They had a true home in the promised land that God had given them as a part of his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He, he had decided that that would be the, the home that he would, where he would dwell with his people and manifest himself in a way unlike anywhere else on the earth. It was the place of, of Joshua and Ruth and King David and Elijah and Elisha, that was where the temple was and the priests were. It was deeply connected to their faith and their identity as the people of God. But then they were conquered by the Babylonians and they were taken to a foreign land. The Babylonians tore down the temple and they brutally murdered some of the people. And others, against their will, were taken into exile. They had to live in a foreign culture, hostile to their country and to their faith. And there was a real danger that they might assimilate and just become like the other Babylonians and lose their distinctive identity as the people of God. So what was Israel's home? Well, on the one hand, Babylon felt like home. That's where they lived and worked and built relationships. They had to abide by Babylonian laws and they lived next to Babylonian people and they lived in the Babylonian climate and listened to Babylonian music and ate Babylonian food and walked on Babylonian streets. That's, that sure felt like home. But on the other hand, it wasn't their true home. Their true home was back in Israel, with the capital city of Jerusalem. It was 
connected to their relationship with the Lord. And they had to remain faithful to God, even though they weren't going to be in a foreign land for a very long time. I had two homes. The Israelites had two homes. And as Christians, we have two homes because we are now the people of God living in exile. That's what the Bible says. We we were full citizens of this world before we knew Christ. We were born in this world. We work here. We play here. We eat the food here. We have relationships here. Our friends and our family are buried here. It is the only world we have ever known. We, we know the culture. We speak the language. This feels like home to us. But if we belong to Christ, the Bible tells us that we are now citizens of a different kingdom, the kingdom of God. We have never been there. We have been told that it's great, although we've never spoken to anyone who's been there. And yet it is the kingdom of God, our God, And we belong to him because we've been bought by Christ and adopted into his people and rescued from our sins. And we still look like Kenyans and Chinese and people who live in Wisconsin Rapids. But our home is somewhere else. And we're in temporary exile here. So the the question is, how should we live in exile away from our true home? We're going to look at this story in Daniel 6 and 3 different sections. Each section sort of has a big surprise that we're not expecting. And each section tells us something slightly different about living faithfully in exile. But I'll go ahead and give you the main overarching point. Okay, here's the main point of this whole story. As Christians in exile, our primary loyalty must be to our true home, the kingdom of God. As Christians in exile... Our primary loyalty must be to our true home, the kingdom of God. So let's look at the first section in verses 1 through 13. You can follow along in your Bible. The story begins with King Darius, who we have not really been introduced to in this story, except in the the previous verses at the end of chapter 5, we are told that Darius took over the kingdom in Persia at the age of 62. Persia was a massive empire that stretched all the way in the east from India across the Fertile Crescent, down into Egypt, and north to Asia Minor, in modern-day Syria and the West. It was the largest empire that the world had ever seen. And in order to control this massive empire, it was divided into 120 districts called satrapies, and it was, which were all each governed by a satrap. And verse 2 tells us that over these 120 satraps, there were three administrators that answered directly to the king. Three top officials in the Persian Empire, and one of those three was Daniel. That's amazing. And verse 3 tells us that not only was Daniel one of these top three administrators, but he was in line for a promotion to run the entire empire. Why? Well, verse 2 implies that he was faithful and not corrupt because the king didn't have to worry about suffering loss. And verse 3 tells us that he had distinguished himself by his exceptional qualities. Now, you know how it is when someone in the office is about to get an internal promotion, right? Everybody gets kind of antsy and unhappy. Why wasn't it me? And 
The same thing happens here. Daniel's about to get this promotion. And so the other two administrators and the satraps created a conspiracy against him. They want him out of here. But he was so exceptional and his character was so impressive that they could not find any way to take him down. Verse 4 says, well, he's not corrupt. He's trustworthy, which means that you, can, you can depend on him. Because he wasn't corrupt, you can't buy him off. He wasn't negligent in his duties. So in other words, he was a very unusual government official. <laughs> kidding, kidding. Okay, all right. But there are two hints in the story that the conspiracy was actually maybe about more than just the upcoming promotion. In in verse 5, it tells us that they were going to charge him in accordance with the law of his God. And And then if you look way down in verse 13, they called Daniel one of the exiles from Judah. Now, I assume the king already knew that. And so the fact that they bring that up, it may be a hint that there is something else going on. Yeah, this guy's a foreigner. He doesn't belong here. We don't want him in leadership over us. And so they hatch this conspiracy and everyone is in on it. Look at verse 7. The royal administrators and the prefects and the satraps and the advisors and the governors have all agreed. Right? They're all ganging up on him. Appealing to the king's vanity, they, they recommend this new law. I mean, the whole purpose of the law is to trap Daniel, right? They're, oh, king, you're so great. No one should pray to anyone but you for a period of 30 days or we will throw them to the lions. So the king signs a decree that cannot be repealed. That's emphasized over and over again. And now Daniel is placed in a very, very difficult position. Up until this point, Daniel's faith in the God of Israel and his identity as a Jew has not come into conflict with his role as a Persian official. He's been very successful. There has not been any trouble. He has been both a faithful Jew and a faithful Persian, but now these government officials have made his faith an issue. They've created a conflict between his faith and his official duty, his social duty, and now... Daniel is forced to make a decision. Is he going to take a break from his faith for 30 days? Or is he going to be killed by lions? Now, over the course of history, governments have used a wide variety of means to end someone's life in capital punishment, right? We can can count them. Uh, There's the firing squad, the gas chamber, uh, hanging, the guillotine, electric chair. I don't want to die in any of those ways, but but think about how terrible it would be to die by lion. You are still alive at first, and there is ripping and tearing and growling and eating. It's bad. What will Daniel do? And in verse 10, we get our first surprise in this story and the big surprise in this first section. 
He is well aware of the trap that they have laid for him, and he is well aware of what it means to have death by lion. And without missing a beat, he goes home and he gets on his knees and he prays. There is no indication here. There is no mention in this story that he goes to friends and says, oh boy, what do you think I should do? There is no indication that he, that he says, well, I'll take three days to think about it. We're not told that there's any internal conflict or, or, or that he's not sure what he's going to end up deciding to do. When he hears that he will get the death penalty for praying to God, he goes home and prays to God. It is straightforward, unflinching obedience. But you can imagine the temptation. Eh, it's only a little compromise. I mean, he's not being asked to outright break God's law, like murder someone. He's only being asked to take a break from a spiritual discipline for a short period of time. He, he's not being asked to pray to the king. I mean, that would be idolatry. We can understand why he won't do that. He's only being asked not to pray to God. I mean, do you ever struggle with prayer? I mean, I've neglected prayer because I was getting a snack. He could pray in private. He could lay on his bed at night with his eyes closed and pretend to be asleep while he's really praying and no one would know. But see, that's not the issue here, is it? It's not really about prayer. They're trying to make, they're, they're trying to make him deny his faith. And he's important. If he's killed, then God loses this influential, faithful Jew in the Persian government. I mean, he's hopefully governing according to God's principles. That would be a real loss of influence. Surely there's a way to compromise here. I think God would want him to compromise. God doesn't want him to get the death penalty, right? But the compromise is not as little as it seems. Because when you look at verse 10... The narrator inserts a very interesting detail here. It says he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Now, we are not told anything else in this story about architecture or layout or geography. So why this? It's for a reason. Daniel may know that he is one of the top officials in the Persian Empire, but he also knows that his true home, his real citizenship, is back in Jerusalem. He is oriented toward Jerusalem, his true home, and he knows it. His prayer to God was not just for personal growth. It was not just a way to exercise his faith as he lives his life. It is a clear sign to him and to everybody else that his ultimate loyalty was to God and his true citizenship was back in Jerusalem. He did not make a big show of his prayer. He didn't make a big provocation of it, but he didn't hide it either. And in verse 11, he is discovered by the officials and they report him to the king. And look at what they say in verse 13. They say, he pays no attention to you, your majesty. He still prays three times a day. In other words, he's not loyal. His true loyalties lie elsewhere. He can't be a good Persian citizen. He can't be trusted. The immovable object 
of Persian law has come into conflict with the unstoppable force of, David, of Daniel's faith and something is going to have to give. The first section is dominated by the conspiring government officials. They're the only ones who speak in this part of the story and the narrator presents them to us as this huge unified group. They're all, they're all out to cause trouble for Daniel and scheme against him. And you know, he didn't pick a fight. He wasn't looking for trouble. He just got, every, got up every day and went into the office and did his very best to serve the Persian government and to do what was best for the king. But at night, he went home and he got on his knees and he prayed to the Lord. He lived in Persia, but he knew where his true home was. It was back in Jerusalem because of his faith in the Lord. And so when he was commanded to neglect even a small aspect of his faith, even just a daily thanksgiving prayer, when his ultimate loyalty was put to the test, he would not compromise an inch. We have seen this before in the book. Remember back in chapter 1, Daniel and his three friends are happy to learn the Babylonian language and they take Babylonian names and they know that they're there for the long haul. But it says, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. He drew a line. I, I, will, I will happily join you as far as I can. I will not eat your food and, and violate my faith. And then in chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are commanded to worship Nebuchadnezzar's golden image. Or they're going to be thrown into the fire and burned alive. And they say, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And they say, well, then you're going to burn alive. And they say, well, then I guess you're going to have to do that. And here in Daniel 6, the decree goes out, no praying to God for 30 days or you will be ripped open and eaten alive by lions. And Daniel says, what can I do? I will not compromise my faith. So Daniel serves as a model for us. Here's our point. As Christians in exile, our primary loyalty must be to our true home, the kingdom of God. But here's the sub-point. Here's the first sub-point in this section. We demonstrate that loyalty by obeying God no matter what. Life in exile can be tricky. You know, in some countries and in some times, it is very difficult to be a Christian. In some, some countries, you have more freedom. In some, in some, some countries, less. But when there is a, when there is a conflict between, between our ultimate loyalty and the country of our location, we choose our identity as the people of God. In Nigeria, if you choose to follow Jesus, there is a chance that you will be kidnapped by a terrorist and they will cut your head off. In India, if you practice your Christian faith, there is a very good chance that your, country, your, that your family will disown you and never speak to you again. And in the U.S., we're finding that if we do not abandon a biblical view of gender and sexuality, if we don't abandon a biblical and unbiblical definition of marriage, if we don't use the right pronouns, 
then we are called bigots. We could lose our jobs. We get a bad reputation. We're mocked as imbeciles, accused of hatred. You know, and someone might say, well, I don't know, maybe we should compromise. It's, is that really a gospel issue? It's not a core Christian doctrine. But the problem is we deny God when we deny what he has clearly revealed in his word. Well, someone might say, well, if you compromise, you set yourself up for, for greater influence later. I'm not sure it's wise to die on this hill. We cannot compromise as Christians. Our identity is at stake. Our citizenship is at stake. Our loyalty to God is on the line. When loyalty to the land of our exile is in conflict with the loyalty to the kingdom of God, no matter how small that is, we choose God. Daniel was ready to be eaten alive by lions rather than take a 30-day break from his daily prayer. All right, let's look at the next section in verses 14 through 22. It says this, when the king heard, verse 14, that Daniel had broken the law, he was greatly distressed. Now, we, first we think, well, he's probably greatly distressed because Daniel has been disloyal to him. But that is not what it says. Here's the great surprise in this section, right? Right, right here at the beginning, he, the great surprise is the king is not distressed because Daniel has been disloyal. The king is distressed because Daniel is in trouble. And the king realizes that he has fallen into a trap. It says in verse 14, he was greatly distressed and he determined to rescue Daniel. Now, the king cannot change the law, but look at how he's characterized here. In verse 16, he says, even as they throw Daniel into the lions, may your God, whom you serve, continually rescue you. And in verse 18, he's so worried that he, he can't eat, he can't sleep, he won't take any entertainment in the evening. As soon as he wakes up in the morning in the early light, he runs to the den of lions in verse 19. He comes near and he says in an anguished voice, Daniel, has your God been able to rescue you from the lions? What, what is behind the care and the concern of the king. There is obviously a close relationship between these two. And there's this moment of silence, and then Daniel answers in verse 21, may the king live forever. That, it's incredible. He's alive. He has not been eaten by lions. But, but what's interesting is that Daniel's response to letting the king know that he's alive, may the king live forever, is the same thing that all the government officials say back in verse 6. In other words, it's subtle, but Daniel is communicating here that he is just as loyal to the king as all those other government officials are. And then he says in verse 22, God delivered me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. In other words, yes, I am uncompromisingly faithful to my God, but I am also loyal to you. 
In this section of the story, the king's concern for Daniel and Daniel's loyalty to the king suggests something very important about Daniel's approach to living in exile. Even though Daniel is absolutely unbending and uncompromising in his faith, when it comes to his true home, he is also deeply invested in working for the good of his home in the Persian Empire. And we've already seen this since the beginning of the story. He's distinguished himself in government service. He is trustworthy and has integrity and fulfilled all of his duties. And now, when he comes out of the den of lions, he assures the king, I am loyal to you. Daniel is now about 70 years old, and he has proven over a lifetime of service that he is committed to the good of the Persian Empire. He has built a reputation. It is not his ultimate home. It is his home for now, though. And so his faith in God compels him to do his best to work for the good of the king and the nation, and that has earned him respect. Daniel has dual citizenship. He has two homes, and and there is a hierarchy. He knows which home takes precedence, but that does not need to be a threat to the king because he has proven himself day after day after day. If the government makes his faith incompatible with Persia, he will choose his faith. But otherwise... He will do everything he can to be a loyal Persian citizen. Daniel is a model for us. As Christians in exile, our primary loyalty must be to our true home, the kingdom of God. And here's our second subpoint, subpoint number two. Whenever we can, though, we should be the very best citizens in our exile. We should live joyfully and responsibly and engaged in our land of exile. Paul says in the New Testament in 1 Timothy that we should live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We should obey the laws, respect our authorities, work hard, be people of integrity, care for our neighbors and the poor, treat all people with dignity. You know, Christians have always faced this temptation to sort of fall into one ditch or the other, to go to one extreme or or the other. One extreme, we might be tempted as Christians to just jump into culture and just go with it, right? And compromise our faith. We don't even think about it. We just accept all the values of our culture and we look to politics to solve all of our problems. And if our particular political party comes out with a position, we just adopt it. We don't even think about whether it's biblical or not. We buy and consume and entertain ourselves and work for that promotion. And it is very difficult to tell that we even have another passport. But on the other hand, there is a temptation to refuse to engage with the world at all. We, we, 
we aren't being asked to deny our faith, but we still get brittle and angry and rigid and antagonistic and we judge those bad non-Christians and hope that they fail. We refuse to help our communities and just become insulated in our nice little church. And then we jump on Twitter and Facebook and we lob artillery shells of truth, right? We're just waiting until the world burns and we can escape to our true home in heaven That is not right. That is not what Daniel models for us. That is not how we're called to live in exile as Christians. We should be the best of citizens, engaged, caring, loving other people no matter who they are, praying for our leaders no matter what political party they're in, and seeking the good of our city. Daniel is a model of walking that thin line. He is both uncompromising when it comes to his faith, but also fully engaged in his present land for good. So that even when his enemies try to find a reason to get rid of him, they can't think of anything. For the final section, let's look at verses 23 to 28 and just bring things to a close. The king has Daniel lifted out of the den and no wound was found on him. You know, he didn't just barely kind of fight off the lions with a stick. It was a miracle. God shut the mouths of the lions. And why? Because, it says at the end of verse 23, because he had trusted in his God. The narrator doesn't want us to try and come up with that on our own. He doesn't want us to miss that. He's explicit. God protected Daniel because Daniel put his trust in God. But then in verse 24, Daniel's accusers are thrown into the lions. Now, it's it's interesting that they didn't make any false accusations against Daniel. They said, well, Daniel's, you know, a Jew and he's faithful to his God. That was true. But now they, with their wives and children, are thrown into the, Daniel, in, into, the, into the lion's den. And it says, before they reached the floor of the den, while they're still falling through the air, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. That tells us two important things. Number one, it was a miracle. I've read scholars who say, well, maybe, the, maybe when Daniel was in with the lions, they were not feeling well and they weren't hungry that day. Or maybe they had just eaten, you know, or something like that. But, but no. No, here, you know, entire families are being thrown in and the lions are very hungry. But the second thing that it tells us is that, that, that not only does God deliver Daniel, but he destroys his enemies. That might make us feel a little uncomfortable, but it is an important biblical truth that God is that concerned about his people that when his people are oppressed and suffer persecution, there is comfort in knowing that God will fight for them and that there will be justice in the end. And then look at verses 26 through 27. This is how the miracle affects King Darius. Let's, Let's read it again. For he is the living God, says King Darius, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves He performed signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. Wow, what an irony that we're learning these unbelievable truths about God from the mouth of a pagan king. 
And the story concludes in verse 28, Daniel prospers in exile. Daniel was miraculously saved because he had trusted in God. If he was primarily a citizen of the Persian Empire, then he would have appealed to the Persian bureaucracy, maybe taken them to court, looked for legal loopholes, or tried to maneuver politically with his social networks or something like that. But he didn't do any of that. He knows he belongs to the kingdom of God, and so he got on his knees at home and he prayed for help. Why? Because he's naive because he's clueless? No. Because he made a reasonable calculation that he would be better served and more effectively helped by the living God of heaven and earth than by Persian bureaucrats. It is always wiser to depend on the Lord. So, as Christians in exile, our primary loyalty must be to our true home, the kingdom of God. And here's that third sort of sub-point there. And we can be confident that God's kingdom will be victorious in the end. That's important. The story is a paradigm. It's a pattern. It, it, it's not a rigid law. We know that God does not always save his people from martyrdom. We know that throughout history, Christians have stood up for their faith in the Lord. And they have been thrown into the lions. And the lions have eaten those people. And pastors are imprisoned, and people are tortured and killed, and God does not stop it. And we know that the enemies of God persecute his people, and then they flourish, and they rise to high positions of power. But the reason this is an important pattern is that it, it, it teaches us that God ultimately wins. And that his people always end up victorious if they put their trust in him. When we experience pressure to conform and we're rejected because of our values, because of our faith in the Lord, we can have confidence in the final victory of God. We will go to our own country and finally live at peace with him. That's why the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 11, that the people of God have acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, but they desire a better country that is a heavenly one, for God has prepared for them a city. So when I was a teenager, people would always ask me where I was from, and I would hesitate and say, I don't know, because I had two homes, right? Zaire, Africa, and Dayton, Ohio. So let me ask you, where are you from? You have two homes as well, Wisconsin Rapids and the kingdom of God. So be encouraged today and listen to King Darius who watched Daniel stay true to his God and then watched God deliver Daniel. He says, he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and saves. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. Let's pray.